Hello, it's Patricia with another edition of the Haiku P podcast. You may have listened to Sean's reading of Fragmentation on episode 11 of the sixth series of the Haiku P podcast, which of course is also out on YouTube. If not, I recommend you go and have a listen to that episode before you listen to this. After his reading, Sean stayed on for a little while to answer questions from the audience. It was an audience of poets experienced in the Japanese short form, not exclusively in Haibun though. And of course, they were invited because they were on our mailing list. Do sign up. There will be other events. Now, Sean had no idea what the questions would be, but happily he likes to work off the cuff. Shall we hear what transpired? Sean, you write beautifully, whether you write prose or poetry, but you chose to go down the Haibun route, which, let's face it, it's not the most lucrative of writing forms. And your prose is so wonderful and your books are so well thought out with themes that I wondered why it was you chose Haibun rather than novels. Um, so do I. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have actually written a novel that's not published. So it's not like I don't write in other forms. And I've certainly written a lot of short stories and in many poetry forms. I think that um, it depends on what you're writing. I don't think I, I choose a form. I think the form chooses what I'm trying to write, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have a long, very long background of writing in Japanese literary forms. So I would tend to orientate to them. But it, it depends on what I'm doing. Uh, that's a very vague answer, isn't it? But it does. Yeah. So, for example, if you if you start to write a short story, you could you could easily find yourself thinking, you know, that this deserves this needs to be longer and longer and longer, and eventually you're into a novel. So I like what the Irish writer Claire Keegan says about this. She said that we don't write short or long. We really need to write enough, and enough, according to Claire Keegan, and I agree with her, is not one word too few, too few. So be careful when you're pairing back. You don't pair that one word that makes it too few and not one word too long. And that's what we mean by the story has to be enough. I, I often find a lot of novels when I'm reading them that there's this section in the, I call it the penultimate dead end. Uh, there's this part about 30 pages from the end of a book and then the 30 pages before that are kind of boring. And something has happened happened uh, in a lot of novels I've read over the years and kind of and it turns out that it's a it's a it's a, a stylized thing with the pilgrimage and the way the journeys are but uh, I don't like any dead wood in any writing at all so I like writers like Ian McCune and it was very tight and I like people like Claire Keegan and love her work and all of that so uh, the starting point is not what will I do but what does the story or what am I trying to articulate what does that demand that I do so I don't start off thinking, I'm going to write a load of Haibun. I just end up writing a lot of Haibun or not, as the case might be. So the work I'm doing for the past year, for example, started off with an idea, I'm going to write a, a series of haiku, 
about visiting my father's grave for the first year, every week for a year after he died. But as I was writing it, Highbull started to come in <laughs> and it became necessary to start writing some Highbull. But on the other hand, then a lot of the haiku I felt were not really working as a form for what I was doing. So I ended up writing Tanka, which is a substantial difference. So in other words, it was the subject and what I'm trying to express dictated, and I use that word deliberately, dictated the form. And often I start in one form and end up thinking, this is not going to work. This form doesn't suit it. So I need to write a villanelle about this. So is is that helpful to think that I don't always? And I I would say one last thing. I always say, I, I noticed over many years that some writers become a short story writer or a novelist. But when I talk to novelists, they all not all of them, but most of them tend to write a lot of short stories that are never published. They don't even submit them. And they tend to write a lot of poetry and they tend to be writing in lots of forms. But the public don't know about that because that's not what they see. They only see the final thing. And then uh, you say to them, well, why do you do that? They say, well, I just like uh, when I'm writing, not everything is going to be a novel. So I write it and I find out it's a short story because that's where it was enough. Yeah. It's the enough, it, the enough business. But I do love the high one form. It suits what I try to write. But that's, a, I think it does. But I mean, other people might. But long answer there. Sorry. I no, hope it's that's, a helpful answer. that's good. I thought, Sean, given your form, you could go, go a long way, on a, a lot longer than that. But that's no, that's good. Thank you very much. I've got a couple of questions. I'll start with uh, Roman. Thank you, uh, Sean. Uh, lovely reading. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask. Uh, to continue what you said previously, that it really depends on what you are writing. Can you maybe uh, tell or elaborate on what themes or subjects are best covered by Highborn, except for travelogues, because it's kind of like obvious, but maybe other themes? I think the reason it's associated with travelogues is because they probably, the, to this day, the greatest Highborn ever written still remains to be in various translations, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, or whatever translation you wish by Basho, which happens to be a travelogue. But that just happens to be the case. Uh, when you read, people people often ask me about what kind of styles of prose are kind of somehow acceptable or not acceptable in a high one. And the answer is, go back to Basho and read The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Uh, now, obviously, people can't read it in Japanese, but the translations, I, I recommend reading more than one translation to try and get a handle on it. But within that, Basho is not simply writing a travelogue, uh, number one. And number two, he's writing in a very wide variety of prose styles, sometimes incredibly direct, journalistic, and as in keeping a journal, and as in, you never hear people criticizing it's very journalistic prose and that's like a criticism of high one. I'm going, uh, if it works, if it works, I would not, as a matter of principle, say you should not write in a journalistic style or a journal in a, either journalistic or like a journal. It doesn't matter to me uh, personally because of my study of Basho. It seems that Basho wrote in so much, such a range of prose in one long high one that he left it wide open. He set the tone for any style of prose and also any subject to be dealt with. And so to elaborate on that, he not just wrote these very direct, 
you know, we were going along and the mountain was very tall and it was steep and we met a man, uh, didn't catch his name. And it was, it's very direct, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we couldn't find anywhere to stay. We're really hungry. Uh, but then then we found this in unexpectedly and it's very direct. There's no flowering it up there. There's no <laughs> beautifully direct, actually. And at the same time, he's famous, really lyrical, beautiful, poetic passages in it about um, Matsushima and so on. And all the time, there is an underlying philosophy, which he gives us from the very opening line. From memory, what's the opening line? The, day, the months and days of the travelers of eternity. Bang. And the rest of the piece is con- concerned with the question of eternity. It's in the first line. Uh, he's very clear all the time what his subject matter is which is eternity. And it's very long and it goes in many directions and it's full of, 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 uh, it's full of characters as well. And there's all kinds of descriptions. And it also took a very long time to write. The journey took six months during which he was collecting, writing haiku only and notes, no prose as such. He then spent the following two and a half years completing the rest of the journey in which he wasn't writing the narrow road to the deep north. So then it, it was from the beginning to the end, there's a three year gap between the time he started the journey, finished six months later, another two and a half years before he got home. And when he got home, he took another year to actually write it all up. So he had all his haiku collected, presumably hundreds and hundreds of them. And then he started the prose and he wrote the prose after two and a half years after the fact. So he had a lot of time to contemplate what he was doing. This is very, very similar to the, the approach, the general approach I take. I take a long time to write something, very long time, years sometimes. So the fragmentation had pieces that were published seven years before we went to press with it. So and then the God of Bones is the same. There's pieces in the God of Bones that were actually published seven years before we published. So it's and and to get to that point to get it published took a two year period. So both of the books, that my recent books, actually took nine years each, uh, running them in parallel and so on. So uh, I don't know if that helps answer your question. It was about the limitations of prose and so on. You're, you're t- Could you tell me if that satisfies your question or have I gone off on a big tangent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love tangents, as you can see. So. <laughs> Just give me an inch and I'll take a mile. Uh, but seriously, Roman, how does that go towards your question do you want to say something more or ask more it most it mostly tells me that there are no uh, no limitations like whatever whatever would sound good whatever would be appropriate it fits yeah i i think that's at the heart of it however the the difficulty is that in order to write highborn you need to contemplate the work in my experience and in the experience of any Japanese writers I've worked with, but I lived in Japan for five years in case people are unaware of that. And working in Japan with the Japanese uh, led me very clearly to understand that the Haibun form requires a lot of contemplation and a lot of time. It, it colors the way you write, you know, it makes it a little bit more philosophical. It also makes it more unpredictable because uh, in the contemplation, you write the haiku and then you've got all these haiku and you start to work your way through the prose and, and like a lot of writing 
as soon as you write the first sentence, the whole the wheels fall off, and the next sentence seems to take you somewhere unexpected, and it goes it goes on like that. I, I'm very fond of a. Unfortunately, he's passed away. Uh, it was an Irish poet that I was lucky enough to hang around with for a while, in, especially in the eighties, called Brendan Kennelly. and I remember him saying one night, "Writing is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlamps throw." But you can drive a hundred miles like that. So the process of hybrid writing is is done by contemplating the journey in advance, and then getting into the car and turning the headlights on and driving at night. And we just can see what's in front of us all the time, but we do know where we're going. Ultimately, can I just mention one other thing, Daddy? Because you're you speak Hebrew as well as Russian, don't you? Or do you? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, one of my favorite expressions in the world is a two-word expression that's very relevant to the arts. And it is yeshkevul. Yes, Does that make sense yeah. to you? Yeah. 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 Could you tell, the, tell people what, the, what like roughly that there, means? There is a border. Yeah. There is a, there is a limit. A limit. Yeah. The hybrid form is a form and therefore has limitations. And it's the limitations that really make us work, uh, which is why I don't want to give the impression that it's a free for all, that you get into the car and drive it at night. No, you do know where you're going, just that the journey can be very unpredictable. <laughs> but there, there are limits and it's the limits of the high one that come, the, the, the requirement to write haiku within the work that are going to make sense to the reader when they hear it. That requirement puts a lot of pressure on you as a writer. You can no longer just write away and hope for the best. I think Shane wants to follow up on on this point that you're making. Shane, are you there? First of all, Sean, thank you. That was a, a just a beautiful reading, very powerful. I look forward to reading the book. I haven't yet, but I am. It's on the list. When we met to do the episode on Haibun previously, you spoke at length about. And you even mentioned a few minutes ago, the haiku come first in the process. You write the haiku and then you have this contemplative period when you start to put together, you know, take the drive at night and, and see where it leads you. Did this book follow that process rigidly or can you think of any haiku that you found yourself reworking to pull the narrative together in the context of as you're pulling the prose together and kind of putting it together as the overall story, were there haiku that you actually ended up reworking as part of that process or were the haiku pretty rigid once you had them? Oh, uh, there's nothing rigid. Uh, the only thing that's rigid is the form itself. I can't escape the need to have, if, if the haiku are too clipped, too pared back, too short, when you read it aloud, it'll just sound like you had a stumble of words after a passage of prose. Or if you take it in extreme, if you try to just write two words as a like, you're finished, you know, because when you read it aloud, it's just going to fall. It's going to fall down, you know, or people will go, sorry, was that supposed to be a, a poem in the middle of that? <laughs> so um, I, I want to try, I, I should try to elaborate more. So I'm thinking about writing uh, a story uh, that I'm very impressed with. A, a boy fell into a well in Italy. This actually happened years ago. And all the world's media were focused on the boy in the well. Right? 
So I think I write a high one about this. So I contemplate the boy in the well. Could be for weeks, could be for days, could be for months. And as I'm contemplating the boy, the situation that I'm trying to describe with the boy in the well, the dilemma of the boy in the well, the mother and the father at the top of the well, and days going by and they finally, all that stuff. You can imagine. So I'm contemplating this and I'm writing haiku connected to this. The, the haiku don't say there was a boy in the well. No. <laughs> but I'm writing the what season is this in or what's the atmosphere what's emotionally happening with the boy in the well and I go on and on and the whole world is looking at the boy in the well story and all the tensions and the emotional possibilities locally in the well being the little boy and the people at the top trying to rescue the boy and all you can see the dynamics here it's huge I could spend months I could spend years and writing haiku that connect to this not so directly, but they connect in various ways. And I've got all these haiku. And I and then I start to write the story in my head. I'm thinking, uh, well, I open up with, a, there was a boy in a well stuck in Italy. Is that my opening line? Or have I got to start with, you know, uh, Mrs. Mother of the Boy in the Well was in her kitchen when? Or is the phone going to her? What's going to happen here? How am I going to put this together? So I'm then I'm contemplating the prose. So then I sit down. So I've got a lot of haiku literally on pages around me if this is a big story, or I might have a page of four or five haiku. And these are connected to my contemplation about what I'm now going to write about. So I start writing and it just becomes obvious after a while. Oh, there's, yeah, I could, I'm moving towards, or I could open with this. Look, it's there, sitting there waiting for me. So I have one for open. Or I start writing the prose and then it seems very clear to me that that particular haiku there is going to sit well here. And now I've got, the starting to structure itself. And then after that, where am I going now? I did, oh, hang on. There's two haiku actually would go right good in a row. So, I've, uh, but I've got them sitting there. As, as it, just to be clear, I may rewrite the haiku a bit because now things have changed. We're in the, we're in the stream of narrative. We're in the flow of this creative process. So nothing stays as it is. Now, typically I'd have anywhere between five and ten haiku if to write one short high one and they typically only use one or two haiku so most of them get nowhere but they're informing the process and finally i sometimes then have this little brainwave it's go oh, i could uh, i can hear a bird song or that i could hear the curlew crying now in the, in the bog uh, uh, a haiku will emerge in the writing that has not been on the sheet you can see how it's not that it's flexible, but it's a process. And by writing, by contemplating first and allowing haiku to emerge, that gives me some sort of firm base to be working on the haibun as a whole. Does that help? So it's not like I stick rigidly to those haiku. I often write new ones. And sometimes I write new haiku, uh, or even what's left, which is a large amount, promotes another, another haibun. I, I start to think about whatever about the boy in the well in Italy. Do you remember that story about the fella or the woman and the thing? And when I was a child or something else will hit me. And <laughs> some of those haiku are already one thing leads to another. You know, that there's a there is a connection. I, I, I very I don't think I've ever written a high one that survived on its own. 
that every time I finish a high one, there seems to be another one coming in the back of it that's prompted by this, and then another one and another one. And the, the way I generally work is when I've got a lot of high bone written in a, what I think is a random way, then I look at them all and go, oh, I think I'm writing about loss. So then I consciously contemplate loss. And then I consciously move. That's how a team emerges. So I don't sit down and think, I'm going to write a book of high bone and it's all about loss. I just start writing the next thing. And then and somebody will tap me on the shoulder sometimes and like my publisher is very good at this. He'll read a little batch of stuff I've written and he goes, oh, I see you're writing about loss now. Oh, I didn't know that. You're right. <laughs> so it's kind of magic process. It's not a very helpful Thank answer because, because it's magic. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a, a perfect answer and it really informs the question that I was asking. I mean, it. I've had several conversations with people about how how rigidly we adhere to the haiku and and like you i tend to allow things to evolve as i you know tell a story um but i just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that so thank you great answer thanks shane and i've got one from debbie uh which i i feel debbie this one is actually a joint question from you and me um sean let's talk titles how do you come up with one? Because in, from my point of view, it's got to complement the haiku and the, the prose. But often that's real my, really my stumbling block. How do you deal with that? Well, I don't know where the idea that the title is important came from. It certainly okay. didn't come from me. Uh, I, I don't spend a great deal of time wondering about that. And okay. uh, there's two approaches to, to titles in all literature generally generally speak broadly speaking a declarative title the boy was stuck in the well boom or a suggestive title and uh, i'll let you make up your own one about the boy in the well so th there isn't much else you know you can either declare what you're writing about or you suggest what you're writing about and this, there is this sort of thing i've seen repeatedly that i've even seen people say that the title the prose and the haiku are of equal importance. Well, that can't be true. That just can't be true. The high bun is important. And the high bun is the prose and the haiku, the haiku plural, by the way. So that's what we're dealing with. And if you call it by some weak name, or if you just call it the high bun I wrote yesterday, uh, I don't really wouldn't worry about that. I wouldn't be concerned. I, I very rarely take stock of titles. And it, this is an actually important point because notice the language, the, the, the title, the prose, and the haiku. There, singular. But who's to say there is there a haiku? Uh, there could be a hundred haiku might be required. Mm -hmm. There could be dozens of them. There could be sequences of them. They, they might be first there might be, you know, there's so many possibilities within high one that that sort of neat formula of prose followed by a haiku, which I write a lot of, but it's just one way of doing it. So we have to be careful how we do it. But I, I don't pay much attention, to, even as an editor, I, I barely look at the title. <laughs> and the last thing I like to see is a clever title. <laughs> it's like, I think, oh, just if you're going to be clever, put it in the work. 
So a hybron is prose and poetry. It's a prosometric form. There's no getting away from it. There is no, they're not separate things. And um, but the title is a separate thing. It's simply it's it's remember that the purpose of the title is just so we can refer to the piece of work and distinguish it from the other piece. That's the sole purpose of a title. You only put a title on it because you need to um because you've got 10 of them and you don't want to be calling them numbers one to ten, which people do as well. You know, sonnet number 14, isn't it? Sonnet number 120. So uh, yeah, if you could put, if you put numbers on it, um, if there's a collection, I'm happy with that. So okay. I don't, I don't. It, it's it's nice to see it. It's nice to work on a title and all of that, but don't think it's so important. Personally, I w- I wouldn't lose sleep over it. And sometimes I just go bang. It's the boy in the well. Okay. If you're gonna lose sleep over it, lose sleep over the high one itself. Okay. That's worth losing sleep over. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I, I, I do read things that people, editors are saying, are you even doing competitions and they're saying and the title, and they put, there's, there's much writing about the title. I just don't understand why. I'm going, it's just a title. Okay. I personally, I don't, I don't, I mean, I spend a certain amount of time, but not, not a huge amount. It, okay. it, the high one is the important thing. I mean, if, if, it, if a novel has a shoddy title, you know. Do you think people won't read it if it's good? You know, if it, if a novel is really good, people say, hey, you should read this novel. And uh, people say, but I don't like the title. I've never heard anybody say that. They kind of go, they might say it's an odd title or it's not a very good title, but no one's going to lose sleep over it. Hmm. But they will lose sleep over it if you, if you, if you start to drift, if you're reading a novel and you're, you're getting bored with it and you know when you want to stop, uh, you say, oh God, this is just too much. That's a problem. But the, the a title is such an insignificant thing in the context of the work that uh, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. I call it whatever, call it whatever you like. <laughs> but why don't you all try this? Start submitting work where the title is completely irrelevant, <laughs> all right? And then see if anyone notices. Because I have a suspicion that people, if you called the boy in the well story, if you called it, uh, my dog hates hates her dinner. And they leave the editor to puzzle over that. <laughs> you might actually get brownie points mm-hmm. for having an absolutely kind of ambiguous title that seems to have nothing to do with what you're saying, but it must have something if the if the writer put it on. I'm sorry, but I like to have a bit of fun with the idea of uh, uh, submitting stuff for fun. You know, just do something yeah. wacky. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can say too late. It's all public. It's all public, and uh, there are going to be a number of editors who really don't appreciate that, probably. Um, well, I mean, if, if it comes to me, I'll just have a laugh. I'll kind okay. of scratch my head and go, I wonder why they're mentioning their dog's dietary habits when they're talking about <laughs> buying the well. But I... <laughs> Well, uh, in that case, we'll all have a competition to see who gets published by you and who's got the weirdest title um, for, their, for their piece. <laughs> Marion, I think you you said uh, this is a massive revelation to me. Did you want to add anything to that? I, I have actually got to the point where I've asked other people to title my hype. <laughs> <laughs> I've workshopped them and said, you know, what do you reckon? I am so bad at titles, so I'm just loving hearing that, Sean. <laughs> Can I give you a tip about something, what I do? I never start with a title, for sure. As no, you can I see, know. I don't have a high opinion of the value of a title. It's it's nice to have a catchy title or something, you know. But I mean, people are not going to dwell on the title for too long. Uh, by their nature, they're quite short. So sometimes what I do is uh, 
I read the work and sometimes it's just a good word or a good little phrase stuck in the middle of it somewhere. Like the opening piece I read today, or the one, here's a good example. How did I title the ones I read today? Let's look at that. So come and see. Mm -hmm. The last line of the prose is, there they are, he said, come and see. So I thought, I like that. Come and see. I'll, I'll use that as the title. How simple is that? And then I thought, oh, yeah, come and see. And that's strange, Sean, because I thought you weren't really supposed to repeat something from the prose or the haiku as a title. According to who? I know. <laughs> they, the people. Oh, who... I've, I've terribly bad news for the they, whoever they are. Of course you repeat. Yeah. I mean, how else are you going to do it? So if I'm writing about the boy in the well and the haiku mentions a well, I mean, I am writing haiku. The whole, the high one is a unified whole. The haiku are not the high. The, the haiku are part of this. They're not. The, it's like saying in your in your fourth sentence, you should never say something that was in the second sentence. But it's okay to do it in the third sentence. There's some stuff like that. It's a unified piece of writing. Yeah. And repetition is unavoidable if you're going to be coherent. And I, I don't know where this comes from. I, I've been criticised for it. I once had this wonderful review years ago of a hybrid, and the the person that wrote the review said, this hybrid by Sean O'Connor would be, is almost perfect. Almost a perfect hybrid, which is a bit much to say about anybody's work. But anyway, we'll forgive them. But they went on to say, except for the fact that they used a particular word in the final haiku that was in the prose, and I looked at this and went, what's the problem with that? <laughs> I mean, of course. So, I mean, if one of the haiku says uh, cherry blossoms for the sake of art, just to be cliche, I mean, of course, I've got to say, I, I'm, I met I, I met a man as I was walking along doing a cherry blossom viewing. And the man had a cousin who was, his son was stuck in a well in Italy which was strange because it was just on the news. This is my story. Now, I've told you, we were cherry blossom viewing. So does this mean the haiku that mentions cherry blossoms has to go in the bin or I have to rewrite it? To t no. It's obviously going to be, if, if your haiku mentions cherry blossoms, why wouldn't you say I was at a cherry blossom viewing? It's called context. Now, I, I, I have to say that I'm always puzzled by that. Never understood it. I, I I don't know where it goes. And it's part of this connection. It's something that else I don't understand is link and shift. I mean, mm -hmm. when I'm talking to the Japanese writers, they don't talk about this. You know, I'm thinking, why, why aren't they talking about it? Because when I went to Japan, I thought I understood haiku, by the way. <laughs> I, I was even the editor of a haiku journal years before I went to Japan. I thought, oh, this is I know all about this. Or I was an editor and everything. Not just an editor for a while, but for eight issues of a haiku journal. So over a period of time. Uh, and uh, every, the Japanese just turned everything upside down because I would say something that they go, why do you say that? Where'd you hear that? We've never heard of that. And so link and shift is a specific technique from the Renga. Yeah. And you know what they say? Link is important because there's a magic word. It has to be connected. So if you have a word in your haiku, like any word at all, and it's in your prose as well, why would it be? Because that's a link. You're you're not going off on a major tangent that 
has nothing to do. You're just not throwing a haiku in that you just feel like it. Uh, you and your own head think is connected. The poor reader has to make sense of this. Yeah. You got to think of the public. The reader have to have to understand this. So the, that's the link bit. But the shift, you see, when they were doing the renga, the renga master, whoever the, the was, someone was in charge. I've done this. The renga master tells you, "Oh, you're doing the next one, <clears throat> uh, Marion. You're up next. Uh, you're doing a two liner, please. Two lines, not three. Uh, it's number fourteen. Let me just look up the rule book here. Ah, yeah." Yeah, your task is to get the autumn in there somehow and also keep the poem going because it's one poem they're writing. Yeah. One poem. So, uh, yes, the poem has been going along in various directions. So we get to verse 14 or something like that. And Marion's next. Uh, two liners, seven syllables each, please. We were doing it in Japanese. And, uh, yeah, you've got to mention autumn. And then you finish. And then uh, we'll say Janice is next. Uh, so Janice said 15. That's three lines, uh, minimum 575. By the way, it's not 17 syllables. It's minimum 17 syllables, up to 23, according to Basho. Oh. There's another little surprise. But Janice is up next. Anyway, three lines. And the last one, you, the link, the shift was for autumn. This one is for an animal of your choice. But you've got to get an animal in there or animals. We're flexible about this. That's difficult, you know, and the other poets are all leaning over, looking at you going, yeah, <laughs> take your time now, we've all night. Because it's a high-pressure environment, it's live. Yeah, I can So you, you got to think on your feet and go, uh, animals. Uh-huh. So that's the Lincoln shift. That's how Lincoln shift actually works. So the shift is preordained. And when I say preordained, the, the Renga master doesn't make it up. They, It's written down in advance. Yeah. When you get to number, verse 16 has to refer to something and there's all these complicated rules like this verse has to refer to the, something from that verse and that verse has to change the season into the winter and this one has to mention animals and this one has to mention people that have no hair or oh, whatever you know <laughs> and it goes on like that but they have it preordained so the shift is preordained so in a high one there is no preordained shift so there is no shift system. Having said that, I do like when there's a sort of a shift of emphasis. I do like when it does, when it still it has to still connect. And sometimes yeah. I read stuff and I go, you know, I read a piece of prose, a, high, a piece of prose, and there's a haiku at the end, and it's fascinating. But I'm thinking, what's that got to do with the prose? <laughs> Seems yeah. like it just went mad. It's like they went home. They were drinking after they wrote the prose. Had a hangover the next day, forgot what they were doing, and just, I better put a haiku in the end of that. There's a nice haiku. And they wrote a lovely haiku and just put it on arbitrarily, regardless of anything. That's not quite what we mean by link and shift. So the link is the bit that insists that, uh, yes, we do have to use words in both. Now, if you're trying to get published by editors who don't agree with that, well, I do it all the time, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, the, the difficulty is that there isn't enough emphasis on going back to the basics and what is this very old form and how does it work? And all kinds of people are throwing out ideas all the time and they kind of stick for a while. But it's reinventing the wheel, really. And when you stop and think about what are we trying to achieve? Uh, well, one thing we do need 
is that readers will understand what we're saying and it will all it'll be it'll have plausibility all work in literature has to be plausible even science fiction has to be plausible but mm -hmm. the plausibility is not that if you say in a science fiction piece that or I'll, I'll tell you something else uh, if you say my character is a, a man who's a, a 40 year old accountant and he works in a small accountancy office this is my character and his hobby is skateboarding. Straight away, you're going, well, that's not very plausible, is it? <laughs> not very likely. So then you've got to make it plausible. So what you've now said is my character is an eccentric accountant, a different accountant, an unusual accountant. So that then sets the tone for well, how do the other accountants in the office relate to that person? Well, the answer will be not the same way as they relate to each other because they are golfers, rugby players, cliche people. All the cliches will be there. So once you take a single step as a writer and say something, no matter what you say, the plausibility is about the fact that you stay online and that you don't forget what you said and don't, don't, don't have your characters change age suddenly or don't have don't forget that it's a teenager you're talking about they cannot also be an astronaut yeah. you can't have them reading the news that night because you said they were 14 so the plausibility <laughs> has to stay there and for plausibility to happen the haiku and the prose have to be connected very clearly they they have to work as a coherent package and i i, I would finish this by saying the difficulty is that we often talk about the prose in a high one and then the haiku. And really, that binary thing called prose and haiku is has its dangers because we can forget that, no, it's actually a thing called a high boom. It's not It's not components. It's, it's almost like talking about a car. And I don't know much, I don't know about car engines. You know, if people say, well, is it, how's the gearbox or the carburetor? You know, and you go, and I'm I just go, does it have an engine? <laughs> Let's talk about the engine. Does the engine work? And they go, yeah, but the gearbox. You have to get the gearbox right. And I go, I don't know about gearboxes. Just give me the engine. You know, we want that, you know. So that's the danger I see with the pros and haiku kind of dichotomy. They are one unified thing and they are beautiful when they are unified. Has, has anyone got a pressing question? They, Janice, over to you. I have a question about intention. And um, in the Zuihitsu section of fragmentation, it seemed like random stream of consciousness the first time that I read fragmentation. But I started to read it again this morning, and I could see connection between each piece of the Zuihitsu and the Haibun. And so my question is, what relationship did you intend between the high the Haibun and the Zuihitsu? The same uh, intention I have between the entire piece. So uh, sometimes people say to me, oh, I enjoyed your collection, this collection of Haibun or whatever it is, and fragmentation. And they refer to God of Bones as a collection. In my mind, they're not collections. They are consciously written 
pieces of work that in my mind are about something and are saying something in a unified way, even though it may be coming from a myriad directions. So I I refer to them as a book, my book, this book and that book, not that collection. A collection is a, a series of work written and published that are all independent of each other, and then you collect them together. So in the Zuihitsu, the three pieces of Zuihitsu in, in the book, Fragmentation, were very, I was very aware that those Zuihitsu are part of this big picture and all the pieces. I write them on their own, but they are in the context of a bigger piece of work. And I'm definitely, I'm definitely working thematically and I'm working systematically uh, right through. So everything is connected. And one of the questions I have to ask myself when I'm finished is what remains in the work? Uh, what is what has remained relevant. Certain pieces become less relevant as you go along and some pieces take on a, an unexpected relevance. So the final act is then to try and curate this from beginning to end in a way that is coherent. So glad you're seeing a connection between the Zuihitsu and the rest because it, it, it is definitely not accidental. And I find Zuihitsu incredibly difficult to write because while they have the appearance of being haphazard, I find they take a lot, a lot of contemplation, and I'm very slow to put pen to paper. I, I will spend considerable periods of time mulling over a, a Zuihitsu approach, and then when I sit down, it looks random. But it is, it has a kind of inner coherence, or that, that's what we're hoping for. Now, I don't know, you read it, and the first time you didn't see it, so that tells us something that is not obviously. But I don't do obvious either. I, I just speak obviously, but when I'm writing, I try not to write obviously. It's a bit like making the accountant a skateboarder. Um, that fit becomes difficult once you take that step. Uh, and going into the Zuihitsu world is a tricky business because it's yeah. it's it's a very tricky thing. They're very, very tricky. It's a very tricky form to write in. And it's interesting that in Japan, uh, novelists all talk about Suhito as something that is something they've all tried and, and really don't have the it it it's a very they all say it's so hard to get your head around it this disparate piece of writing that has to have some internal coherence mm. that's the tricky bit you know a, a lot of people say to me but you're just following the brush you're just writing what comes to your mind and you go Oh, you don't want to do that now without dipping the brush into the ink for a long time. And you don't, you know, they literally used to make the ink and all of that. That's all part of the process. It's it's a long contemplation. And then it's almost like revealing a kind of weird meditation. It's, it's almost like that, but it must have coherence for the readers. It won't, if you just write, if I wrote down my random thoughts, believe me, nobody, you'd lose interest very, very quickly. I'd say it gets about one page, but the Zuihitsu is not quite like that. It's it's a lot more. I think uh, it's time to wrap up, and I want to say thank you very much, Sean, for staying on and, and doing the questions, and to thank you all, the, all my lovely guests who've come along today to help me experiment with this live event. It, I, I hope you all enjoyed it, and to everyone who's listening, 
I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and come back and visit us again, as I'm sure Sean, well, Sean will be because God Bones will be up soon. Thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great to see everybody. Well, we need to wrap up now. Thank you again to Sean O'Connor and to our lovely audience of poets for coming along to Key Towers today. Thank you for listening at home. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. And remember, the links to Sean's books will be in the show notes. So until we meet again, keep writing. <laughs>